future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back for another week's edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Doctor Future, and I am Tom Bionic. And it's wonderful to have you back again. Again, another week, another new edition, and another new guest we're going to have. And this week we have a fantastic guest. We have Brother Chris Pinto, who is the founder of Adullam Productions, who is a writer and documentary filmmaker. Yes, he is. I'll tell you. Um his films, especially Riddles and Stone, really, really changed my world view. Um, I think today we're going to be talking a little bit about his his current film. We're probably going to be talking a little bit about his uh, 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 some of his past films, some of his work. Uh, he knows a lot about Freemasonry that I think a lot of Christians really should uh, consider and to take, you know, just to at least listen mm-hmm. to what he has to say at the very least. Well, he knows so much about so many things, and those of us who have reviewed his um documentary so far they're mm-hmm. very extensive yes he uncovers so much unique information about so many topics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that uh i don't know anyone who hasn't watched his work and been amazed not been amazed by what oh they've yeah seen. consistently people i know that i you know i loan them about it or they hear about it and go and see it they always come back and they say i never knew that mm-hmm. and this gentleman doesn't toot his horn a lot but uh his uh work has been even acknowledged by the secular media because of the quality of the work that he does. It's great. He is a he is a, a strong, committed Christian, but he doesn't just leave it. He he backs it up with solid evidence and hard, uh, hard facts and stuff to his work. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's I really appreciate that. Right. I mean, he achieves excellence in oh, his work. Absolutely. And uh, whether it's uh, film critics in New York or L.A. or others that give him various awards for his mm-hmm. work. Uh, what we really appreciate is the content mm-hmm. and what he has to say that particularly believers need to hear. Yeah. But uh, as we'll talk about it, it's a it's a tremendous way for even uh, people who aren't believers to. And hear. this might be a way to to sort of minister to some people, you know, to mm-hmm. to bring in non Christians. Right. Uh, and that's something he talks a little bit about. Um, you know, you get the you get the DVD set and it kind of goes through this progression and you can kind of look at it and get a sense of like where things are going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're able to tune in all week to hear the entire 
the entire interview that we have with Chris Pinto that will be playing Monday through Thursday. But in the meantime, we'd like to hear from you and to hear any of the shows, including shows you may miss. You might want to catch out our new announcer that we have. Oh, yeah. Hey, Merv. And uh, we're going to have uh, some announcements actually done about how you can catch the rest of the shows at futurequake.com. So announce away. Futurequake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Okay, thank you very much for that word. Right on, bro. And Sounded better than ever. We're, uh, we're glad to uh, have that addition to our yeah. show now. Uh, we also uh, want to give him an opportunity to uh, let our listeners know how they can give feedback to us uh, via, the inter- via the email. Yeah. Uh, we'd like to have some email accounts. So he's going to share with you a little bit about how you can get your feedback back to us. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, so with let's, let's jump in, man. No further ado, I think we need to jump into it, ladies and gentlemen. I think you'll really enjoy this. Listen very carefully; you're going to learn something. Uh, and we're cutting away to our interview with Chris Pinto, and we're going to talk about all sorts of fascinating things he's done in his documentaries. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to have you at the Future Quake Show. Uh, we have our guest tonight, uh, Chris Pinto, who is the founder of Adult Films and a uh, writer and documentary filmmaker. With us tonight to uh, talk about a number of subjects, including the secret origins of America and its future destiny, and a number of other projects that he's been involved with. Uh, Chris, it's wonderful to have you on the Future Quake Show. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Dr. Future. It's great to be here. I think I've been on once before, haven't I? That's right. And we got so much feedback on that. Uh, I know a lot of people went and wanted to get your documentaries when they heard a little bit of the subject area, what you covered. And and we cannot uh, encourage people any stronger uh, to go on and get a hold of your materials. They, they were, were They were great. shockers. They were eye-opening. And I hope uh, we can cover at least a little bit of our material in our discussion uh, with you now and actually uh, give people at least a little bit of a taste to uh, get them interested in finding out more about the subject area that you cover with your Christian documentaries. Uh, to kick things off a little bit, could you uh, share with us briefly a little bit about your background and for example, how you came to know the Lord and how you developed an interest in the cinema and documentaries in particular? Well, I was a, uh, you know, when I when I got out of high school, I went to acting school. And that was initially my interest, to, to get involved in acting. And I, I did a lot of work on stage and so on. And then got into writing and directing when I was uh, going to school in North Carolina at the North Carolina School of the Arts. And got into writing plays and eventually screenplays. And then I got into independent filmmaking in my early 20s and spent the better part of uh, really most all of my 20s trying to pursue a career in, in filmmaking, independent filmmaking primarily. And had a, did, just did a lot of writing and so on, but I was pursuing it all from a very uh, selfish uh, you know, desire to get, get fame and fortune and glory for myself perspective. And, uh, and then when I was about 30, I came to know the Lord. I got saved, um, began to, to study the Bible, and, uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ really turned my life around. I became a new person and, and left the old things behind 
and uh, really didn't know what the Lord wanted me to do. Uh, in fact, I had really let go of all of my creative ambitions and uh, uh, was just, just ready to do whatever God wanted me to do. But he soon turned me around and, uh, and showed me that he had given me whatever talents that I have uh, ultimately to serve and, and to glorify him. So I set about trying to uh, uh, figure out what sort of a Christian filmmaker I might be. I ended up moving. I was in New York when I got saved, but I ended up moving out to Los Angeles. And uh, a few years later, um, now this was New York City. Yeah, I was in New York okay. City. I was in in Manhattan on the Upper East Side, hmm. uh, about a about a block and a half from the East River, where I used to go running every day. Uh, beautiful up there, but uh, you know, New York's a strange place. There's a lot of you know, people often think <laughs> about. An understatement. Yeah, they, they often think about the crime there, or they'll think about you know the the worldly, worldliness of it. They'll see it as a kind of Babylon kind of setting. But what you don't realize until you live there is 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 the uh, the tremendous amount of faith that a core number of people have where God is concerned, because things life is so hard there. I, I was usually surprised when I. Uh, first became a, a Christian and started going to the local Christian bookstore that was there um, in Midtown. And I was always amazed at how that place was packed. And there were just so many people in there who were looking for materials who seemed to be hungry uh, to learn something uh, you know, that would help them get through their day-to-day -day lives. You see people on the subways working till 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning these are often people who have hard lives, and, and when people are in that position, they quite often cry out to God and trust in Him because they have to. Um, and so I, that that was a very surprising side to... Uh, you know, to that's not what we city. see on TV, though, Chris. No. We see the fast-paced lifestyle of New York City, right. and we see all the wonderful life and excitement, you know, as opposed to flyover country, like here, you know, where people just live in cornfields and have nothing to do or entertain themselves but but you know, like they say the cities the cities really are a jungle and it, it almost is sort of a doggy dog and a harsh lifestyle just to try to stay ahead well that's certainly true and, and i think that that is the element that dominates a place like manhattan there's no question about it but you would be surprised at how uh in in times of desperation there are people people there really do reach out, I believe. I, I can't say that's the majority of the people. It certainly happened for me that way, and I did meet other people uh, who were uh, who were experiencing the same thing. Um, because you sort of come to, when, when you're in a place like Manhattan, it's such a hard place to live. It's almost like boot camp for life to be there. Um, you, 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 you will either become rich and famous, or you come to the end of yourself, as it were. Uh, you get really broken down when your ambitions fail, and that was certainly the case for me. But that's where the Lord met me, and that's where the Lord turned turned me about and showed me that the path I was taking, you know, for myself and my own selfish desires was vain and ultimately would come to nothing. Uh, and that anything I did apart from Him uh, would, was really a waste of time. And... Uh, and, and that's where my my conversion began. It was when I laid down my arms, as it were, and I said, "Okay, Lord, what would you have me to do?" And if it had not been for that, you could still be uh, kicking around in New York City, making some forgettable productions that 
may not have any kind of impact on anybody whatsoever. Right, or or have all the wrong kinds of impact on on people. You know, have yeah. have the kind of impact that inspire people toward, you know, godless lives and so on. Which is was certainly, I mean, looking back now, that was the kind of material I would write. You know, it's stuff that I wouldn't have in my house today. Uh, yeah. And and eventually, it took me a while, but I eventually took all the scripts that I had written and threw them out. Um, because I, I realized these things just did not glorify God. Uh, so, so anyway, but, but all of that was a journey that took quite a few years to uh, uh, to get through and to understand those things. But then the Lord turned me about, and uh, and initially I wanted to to uh, write and direct and produce dramatic narratives, uh, fictional works, and things like that. And I still have that desire somewhat. But I came into uh, contact with um, a Christian presentation called Rock and Roll Sorcerers of the New Age Revolution by Pastor <laughs> Joe Schimmel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a it's kind of a bizarre title, but it was it dealt with the music industry. Mm-hmm. And Pastor Joe, his background was as a musician who who tapped into occult powers while he was pursuing his musical career and came to uh, realize what he had done, and then through that experience became a Christian and got saved, and then began studying the music industry and and the satanic elements that exist in rock music and then also pop music. And he had this whole presentation, and it was very interesting because it wasn't just about music. He was talking about how he was, he was talking about Bible prophecy, about mm-hmm. the uh, how prophecy talks about there will be eventually a, a world order, a world government, a world economy, a one world leader, uh, and that the world would be unified eventually in a, in a common cause, and that this unification movement would ultimately be the kingdom of Antichrist. And I had never, you know, even though I'd been a Christian for a number of years and I read my Bible every day, I had never understood the prophecies that I read in terms of, I never thought of them in terms of modern history. I guess I always figured they would be things that would happen later on. You right. Know? Yeah. And here was somebody who was saying, well, these things are happening now. They're unfolding right now. And I was really amazed by it and began from there to study this thing that I'd heard about called the New World Order that I didn't know anything about back then um, and the New Age movement and so on. Now, you were still pursuing your cinematic efforts at this time in another vein? Well, this time, by, at this point, I'd been a Christian for several years. I'd moved to Los Angeles and was trying to figure out what the Lord, you know, what sort of work I would do uh, for God. I was involved in a church. I would write, uh, you know, uh, dramatic productions based upon biblical stories and things like that and do the you know and then direct them at the church as kind of church presentations and so on um but i i still wanted to pursue filmmaking i just didn't exactly know what i would uh what i would produce and um so then about that time i i fell into this subject matter and began to research it and as i sought the lord and prayed about it you know i was inquiring you know would should i make a documentary about this kind of thing. I'd always loved the documentary format and uh, and so seemed to get approval and as I would step out on things, doors would open and opportunities were presented 
And so uh, I began to move forward, and just one step at a time, it took me. The first documentary that I produced as a result was called Megiddo, The March to Armageddon, Bible Prophecy in the New World Order, hmm. where we talk about, uh, we, we show an outline of, of prophecy. We show people places in the Bible. This was a thing for me. It was very difficult to understand at first why people were saying this new world order would be the kingdom of Antichrist and where are they getting that in the Bible and so on. I was asking all of these specific questions. And uh, I kept looking for some book or some video or something that would explain in a short presentation why these things are believed to be so. And I could never find anything really that was concise and that you know was to the point and could say this, 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 and this. And so, uh, so that's what Megiddo was intended to be, to explain to somebody in, say, two hours uh, how... You know where you find this information in the Bible, and then why people believe uh, these things are coming to pass in the pages of history. And so that's really what uh, that's when Adullam Films, our film company, began, and uh, we began to produce these documentaries. So we did Megiddo One, and then we get, did uh, Megiddo Two: The New Age. Now, now, what time frame in in time it was this year? This was uh, oh gosh. It was we released Megiddo one in two thousand three. I think it was December of two thousand three. Uh, I want to say that's right. I'd have to go and look it up. You sound like that's so long ago, but yeah, you I produced an awful lot of product in a very short window of time. Yeah, and these are long documentaries. That's the other thing. They're you know they're but. Yeah, we did, but and before that, we, we I had sort of a, a brief hiatus, and I worked with um, another Christian filmmaker named Carol Matriciana of Jeremiah Films, and we produced, uh, co-produced with her. I really did the editing and some of the writing and research and so on, but it was uh, a video called The New Barbarians Training Children to Kill, and that was, uh, oh, I guess that was in 2002. Yeah, these are such cheery topics. You know, it's not quite yeah. like the Veggie Tales. Yeah, very, very happy, very, very <laughs> right. fluffy. You know. Yeah. yeah, well, we we've had a hard time breaking this stuff into family Christian bookstores. Uh, I'll bet they've, they've not been as receptive as we would like. But uh, you know, but yeah. and that's part of the problem, and that's why uh, it, it's so great the the opportunity we have now to share this information where we are, because this kind of information is extremely important for people to hear when they. When people hear the, uh, the our interview and conclusion here, they're going to understand why this needs to be heard and why it does not need to be screened away from Christians, and they need to be aware of what's going on in the world around them. Well, that's that's what uh, you know. That's what I came to to learn because initially, when I was learning some of this stuff, I wondered whether or not this was the kind of material I should really be researching because a lot of it is very disturbing. A lot of it is very, very disturbing. But it's real. It's really happening. And it's it's not something that is getting better in the world. It's something that's getting worse. And I remember when I was having a struggle over this, I found uh, a passage in Ezekiel chapter 22 where God is reproving his priests. And he says, uh, you know, her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. Uh, they have put no difference between the holy and the profane, and they shut their eyes to my Sabbaths. 
they have shown no difference between the unclean and the clean, and I am profaned among them, and so on. And so what God is charging his priests with, and as believers, we, we believe that we're all priests and ministers through Jesus Christ, uh, what God is charging his priests with is a responsibility to put that difference between the holy things of God and those profane things of the world and those things which are not of God. And, of course, that's what's happening with the ecumenical movement, with this drive for one-worldism. Uh, the way that they're uh, patching and sewing the world together is by breaking down any walls or barriers that divide men, and certainly religion, belief, is, you know, if you believe in Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes unto the Father but by me, immediately there is a wall between your faith and every other religion in the world, uh, because Jesus and the apostles did not compromise the gospel message. And we've got very definitive statements. We've got Paul saying, you know, if any man or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, let him be accursed in uh, Galatians chapter 1. Yeah, there's so, only one way. There's only one way. Amen. And you and your documentaries have done a lot to expose where a lot of that compromise has occurred, but, but there's just such a broad scope. Can, can, can you summarize uh, some of the scope of the other cinematic projects? You mentioned some of your early projects, but uh, the, the range of topics that you've covered today? Well, it, uh, the the general focus for all the stuff that we do, because sometimes we take it, we take a very biblical approach, where we're quoting a lot of scripture and so on, uh, and then in our, for example, our America series with Secret Mysteries of America's Beginnings, and then Riddles in Stone: The Secret Architecture of Washington D.C. Was there great, we by take the way. <laughs> there oh. we take more of a uh, uh, a historical approach, more like something you would see on the History Channel. And that's very intentional. And it's to show objective historical evidence and to present it in an almost secular manner so that an audience, let's say if you're an unbeliever, uh, some people, if you start quoting Bible passages to them right away, they'll just shut it off and they won't want to hear anymore. Um, others, you know, you might lead a little bit at a time giving them historical data and showing that these things are coming to pass and so on. Uh, and as in the Secret Mysteries series, it's almost like we're unfolding the mystery one step at a time. But all of these historical events and, and things that are transpiring, from our view, if you're a Christian and you know prophecy, you recognize immediately why we're pointing these things out. Right. And, and, and Tom and I were just saying that we think you do a masterful job yeah. of leading, uh, you know, in some, some ways uh, slumbering Christians, but also those who do not know Christ. And you, you build your credibility with the impeccable research that you do yeah. and the just the amazing data that you pull out. And I find it an amazing way to build up a way to share Christ to people that are resistant to your typical TV preachers mm -hmm. and things like this. Mm -hmm. You actually you earn their respect with the, the very accurate portrayals of what's going on in the world around them and explain to them what they see. And then you give them, uh, at the end, a, sort of a biblical worldview uh, but you but you've prepared them to be able to see it, and uh, I think if you look at some of the sermons that Paul or others have given in Acts elsewhere, they they often do that. Whether it's uh, you know when he's on Mars Hill talking about the unknown God or things like that, that same approach is used. And I, I just think you do a fantastic job with it. Well, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Well, you you've defined right there 
exactly what we're attempting to do with a series. And, of course, the series is not done yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're working on part three right now, which is called Eye of the Phoenix, uh, which deals with the uh, some of the secrets of the history of the dollar bill and the great seal and things mm-hmm. like that. In fact, I think we're, we're, we've got some groundbreaking data that I've never seen in any other Christian film or documentary or even on things like the History and Discovery channels. Whenever they cover these things, they usually overlook or simply don't know uh, about some of the more mysterious details and histories of things that were going on in uh, you know middle of the 20th century, World War II era with FDR and the people surrounding who were influencing his decision to put this great seal, this, these symbols mm-hmm. on the back of the U.S. dollar and why he did so. Well, um, I, I tell you, uh, one of the things you've, you've done is you've ruined my uh, ability to enjoy some of Hollywood's uh, feeble attempts in going in this direction. I know there was that series with Nicolas Cage, uh, the name escapes right. me. Uh, of, of that series, but national treasure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, your document, your documentaries, pretty much just crush them. Well, they, I mean, they were just they <laughs> were so, they were sort of dull in comparison. Now, yeah, you know, right. I, I don't see you in your documentaries, you know, teetering on some kind of table ready to fall. But but aside from that, uh, the information that you have is so amazing and provocative. And and, and frankly, I, I I could tell you, you've done something that should be the goal of any kind of documentary filmmaker. Is you changed my worldview. Yeah, me from, too. From reviewing. Your work, having reviewed lots of other material that skirted around the direction that you took, uh, as a believer in the Lord, you hit it right between the eyes, and you radically changed my view of certain people in politics, in the world, and what was going on around us, and I have been forever changed because of it. And uh, if that's the best endorsement I can give you, uh, Brother I'll Chris. That. I wish I could. I wish I could say it that eloquently, but yeah, it changed my worldview as well. And all the other Futurians that are listening to us tonight, I hardly recommend that you get a hold of this, set aside a little time to digest yeah. uh, the information. Um, you know, judging from the uh, the impact of public perception and, and debate of recent documentaries that have been in the news, like Loose Change, he's talked about the 911 Truth Movement, or Michael Moore's productions that he's done, or even Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, which supposedly, I guess, he won, won a Nobel Prize for. Right. Um, I sort of uh, see and I submit that we're now entering a golden age of documentaries, uh, in terms of their influence on the public and their general popularity, and the opportunities that exist with documentaries outside of the mainstream media markets, uh, in, with, particularly with the advent of the Internet, um, in having an ability to influence the mindset of the public. It's one of the few really effective independent media right now that seems to affect the mass consciousness. Do you agree with me with that assertion? And uh, do you foresee this continuing to occur in the days ahead, if you do? Yeah, I certainly agree with you. Um, it's and it, it's sort of it's crossed over into other areas of entertainment, into reality TV, uh, into things like American Idol. Not even though that's a very different thing, audiences are very much into real life and what is really happening in somebody's life. Uh, and and at at a certain point, it's a very interesting leap from you know, just viewing fictional works and dramatic narratives where they're imaginary tales and this kind of thing. But if you if you were to go, if you watch Hollywood and if you were to go to New York and go to Broadway, it, it, it's almost sad, but it's like the entertainment industry is running out of ideas. Uh, <laughs> most of the Broadway shows that are that are there 
are, are, are shows that were made from movies that were popular or something. You know, they'll, like there's the Color Purple musical or something. Uh, that's what they do because they don't have a lot of new ideas. And even a lot of the films that come out are either a sequel of something like Indiana Jones or it's a remake of something like the Fantastic Four or the Brady Bunch or whatever. Uh, that's just a lot of what's being done. But uh, the, the spillover seems to be into reality television, a lot of these different shows where uh, you have these cop shows, crime shows, biographies, uh, and then you've got your History Channel, Discovery Channel, all of these different, and this is all mainstream documentary kind of stuff. And I think cell phone video and palm quarters and this kind of thing, uh, the footage of which ends up on the nightly news all the time. I mean, well, almost most of, every night. Most of the people I know really enjoy watching the History Channel, yeah. Discovery Channel, mm -hmm. pieces like this. Now, I know there's got to be an audience for American Idol and Jerry Springer and things like that, or otherwise they wouldn't be there. Let's not so, forget YouTube, too. Uh, that's right. right. YouTube's, you know? a, yeah. YouTube's... You know, of course, as far as my concern with TV, I think the uh, Zenith with television was BattleBots, when uh, people's <laughs> homemade robots <laughs> fought each other, and I think it's been downhill since then myself. But... Uh, it, 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 it seems like to my observation that, it, particularly even with our 24-hour news, cable news, that uh, all of these, all this information perspectives are pretty much pre-bought and uh, are, are, you know, what decided in, in editing rooms and in boardrooms, and the information is carefully controlled that goes to the public. It's just and, a commercial, is what you're saying. Yeah, and, and aside from from internet, which which typically is very specialized audience, it's mm -hmm. decentralized into you know, millions of different sites and readers, specialized readers, the documentary is still has a capability, it's illustrating, to have a big effect on the public mass consciousness. And I think you stand at a tremendous opportunity in the Christian sphere to motivate large numbers of Christians and also those outside the faith with the special gifts that you've been given, Chris. Well, praise the Lord. Well, I, you know, I, I generally agree with... Uh, with your view, I know that you and I have, have talked about this in the past, Dr. Future, and, and uh, you, I think you're absolutely right. I've had other Christian ministers. Uh, in fact, I was able to interview uh, Roger Oakland a few weeks ago for uh, another documentary that we're working on, and, um, and he had made mention of the same thing. Um, but I've had a number of, of ministers and teachers and so on when I've had the opportunity to meet with them uh, share that comment because a, a documentary or a video or whatever can, can often impact audience after audience after audience. You know, people will get these things, they'll take them, they'll watch them at home, then they'll have a Bible study and show them to their friends and uh, they're often passed around or at times we'll have them shown on Sky Angel. We've, we've been blessed with that opportunity. And... Uh, you know, Sky Angel has like an audience of about 10 million people. And wow, I didn't realize it was that big. Yeah, wow. yeah. They've, they've, they've got at least that, but that's the, that doesn't mean they're all watching your show. You yeah, know, that, that's, appro <laughs> that's approaching uh, that's approaching future quake number Yeah, there. oh, well, you know, on a slow Tuesday maybe. On yeah. a slow Tuesday, right. yeah. But, uh, but anyway, we'll get calls from people. We have over the, the past few years where every now and again somebody will call and say, they saw one of our documentaries on Sky Angel. They videotaped it, showed it to friends of theirs, at a, or showed it at their church, or this kind of thing. And I always get very excited, and I'm always very encouraged when I hear stories like that. 
uh, because you, you never know how the Lord's going to use your work, your labor in Him, uh, to, to reach out, to speak to others, to bless them, and, and to bear fruit uh, for God's glory and for the sake of the gospel. Ultimately, that's that's what all that we're doing and that we do is, is aimed toward. Uh, I, I don't pretend that we're the most able ministers at it. I know I've still got a lot to learn about how to reach out to people, but that's that's ultimately the aim. Uh, yeah. For what we do. But you, you, you know, you're, you're, like you said, you're clear about it. You know, you're waiting on Lord, the Lord to do the work and, you know, just kind of work through you, as it were. Amen. Yeah. Well, um, focusing just for a little bit on your Secret Mysteries series of Origins of America, um, which, which focuses on amazing and very mysterious origins that you uh, expose in your work, in your series. Can you explain your purpose for this particular series of documentaries, and and also what kind of rewards and recognition you've received from them, as well as other comments you've heard, both positive and negative, from them? Well, with Secret Mysteries Part One, the New Atlantis, we we took a very History Channel style approach to it, and so we interviewed for that because we're dealing with the uh, the founding of America, and we show how. You know, we certainly agree with the view that there were Christians who came to this country at the beginning, at Plymouth, with the Puritan Pilgrim Movement and so on, who came here because they wanted to worship God and build their churches and so on, uh, and and find religious freedom, be, be free from the entanglements of Europe and the limitations and persecutions of Europe. And so there were those who came here, but we argue that when they came, they did not come alone, that there were others from England and eventually other parts of the world who had a different view of America. And their view of America was that when America was discovered, that it was in reality rediscovered and that they had found the lost continent of Atlantis. Literally, that's literally what was believed back in the time of Elizabethan England and we talk about a guy named Sir Francis Bacon and how this was the Baconian view. And Bacon had written a book called The New Atlantis. And it was, uh, it's believed to have been an allegorical book where he's talking about this uh, hidden away island where there's this secret society on the island and this very advanced society where they have tall buildings and flying machines and they've got cannons that can fire the equivalent of weapons of mass destruction. They have health centers. They've got scientific research centers where they do experiments on animals to find cures for human beings and so on. And you're reading Bacon's book that was uh, published back in, I think it was 1625 or thereabout. Um, and it sounds a whole lot like America. Uh, and some of the details that he is describing in this book are just incredible. And this is why you've had Baconian societies from then to now who have believed that Bacon is the real founder of America, that he's the one who envisioned what America would be. And the subtitle for his book, The New Atlantis, The Land of the Rosicruce, or Land of the Rosicrucians, is, theologically speaking, what America has become. And uh, to understand that, you have to understand Rosicrucianism. Rosicrucianism is, uh, is the mixing, the mingling of 
Christianity and the ancient mystery religion. And the symbol for it is the rose and the cross, uh, the rosy cross, or the rose croix. And you find these rose crosses uh, all over England. We found them when we were over there filming for this. And we went into different, we went like into uh, a Knight Templar church, temple church there in London. And you'll find the rose and the cross symbol. Uh, the rose is, some people might remember the Da Vinci Code, the book, where the term sub rosa beneath the rose mm -hmm. was used. And sub rosa, it's a term for secrecy. And that's what the rose symbolizes it. You know, I would it. I would assume most Americans across the country have no clue what impact Francis Bacon has had on Anglo-American culture in world history. Probably the most influential people in all of world history. Yeah, it's right. pretty big, isn't it? Which, which you really, you know, verify in... in, in you're, you're hitting some just very upper-level, top-level comments on your documentary, which you lay out very, very meticulously and carefully, almost like an, an attorney laying your case out in court in your documentary. But um, one thing I found interesting about uh, this production, and I don't want to give away too much of it, but, but you actually found supernatural connections there, which brought it back to the spiritual side. Uh, it, it wasn't just a philosophical idealism that they had, but also something that had some kind of spiritual energy behind it, that you found some amazing uh, materials to connect it. And I tell you, if people are amazed by... Uh, Da Vinci Code or some of these other kind of things, you ain't seen nothing yeah. yet. Hagwalk compared to with, the riddles and stuff. With, with the real-world information that you verified in these documentaries in putting the pieces together and connecting the dots. And uh, that's that's sort of the way I saw it, is, is your amazing way to connect the dots in where history has really taken us. And it really explains the curious progress of American culture, and particularly our leadership, does it not? Oh, Yeah. I mean, once you understand that uh, Bacon and his mentor, Dr. John Dee, who's sort of the role model for Gandalf the Wizard in, in uh, Lord of the Rings, and, and these type characters, these wizard magicians, that these guys were the leaders of Rosicrucianism. Rosicrucianism became Freemasonry, uh, or it, it evolved into the foundation of Freemasonry, and of course those were the guys who came to America, and they came to fulfill this vision. And uh, we try to show this trail through them leading into guys like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, who were certainly influenced by Baconian uh, philosophy. And they, they had, I believe, the, the same vision for America that Bacon did. And it wasn't America as a Christian empire, but really a Rosicrucian empire where Christianity would be unionized, it would be mixed with all these other religions, and that would become, if you will, the religion of the New Atlantis of America. So in other words, Christianity was almost co-opted, and, right. and it seemed to me that, um, that they built America using the, the sweat and labor uh, of many uh, re religious exiles that left, that truly wanted to worship Christ here, but along with it, you have very, very powerful and wealthy people who came along and use their efforts for their own for their own purposes, which didn't line up completely with what we would consider classic Christianity. Exactly. In fact, there's a there's a quote from Manly P. Hall, who some might I'm sure if anybody who studied Masonry knows Hall, but Hall, for those who don't know, is considered Masonry's greatest philosopher in the 20th century. But Hall talks about uh, in his book uh, the Secret Destiny of America. 
he talks about how the the pagan intellectuals, he calls them, the pagan intellectuals reclothed their original ideas in a garment of Christian phraseology. Uh, so they were pagans, they knew they were pagans, but they had to present themselves as Christians. And they developed words and phrases and things like that that sounded kind of Christian, but they weren't really. Uh, you know, the Bible, from a biblical view, we would say they were wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, that's that's probably, the, that's the reclothe their original ideas. <laughs> they just dress themselves up like sheep. And this is what gets very confusing for a lot of Christians today when you, you have these ministers and ministries that are very gung-ho America's Christian heritage. And there's a, there's a certain amount of truth to America's Christian heritage. It is there. But we as Christians, we need to exercise discernment and put that difference between the holy and the profane and acknowledge you know, where the Christians were and what they were doing and be careful that we don't end up transforming certain pagan ideas, signs, symbols, things like that, and making them into some kind of Christian thing right. that they're not and were never meant to be. You classic know, it, classic example, just very quickly, the eye on the back of the dollar bill, some people calling that the eye of God and saying it's a Christian symbol, or the obelisk, the Washington Monument, that's an Egyptian symbol, and some people saying that, that because it says glory to God on top of it, that that somehow or other means it's a Christian uh, uh, symbol. Uh, and neither of these are Christian symbols and were never intended to be Christian symbols. Well, it, you know, and Jesus warned us about this. You know, he said, wherever you find wheat, you're going to find tares. Mm -hmm. And we are to expect wheat and tares to be sown together. Right. And they will be there until he returns, he says. So, I, to me, that's what you expose, that, that there's much wheat in the Christian heritage of the people who came over and, and populated our continent and formed a lot of our wonderful heritage, but there was lots of tares that were sown in, and these tares were people that tended to be wealthy, powerful, well-connected, and have been working a plan, and I think you're, what your work exposes is helps a lot of Christians who can't understand with all these wonderful godly people in our country, why do we see some very disturbing and bizarre uh, trends and directions our country takes, not only here but in the rest of the Western world and beyond? Right. But, but why are these things going on? And I think you help explain that these things are premeditated and they're part of a bigger plan. But now, Roger Bacon even went back even farther, back to Plato and these other areas, correct? And, and took a general philosophy of creating, uh, and Plato talked about Atlantis, about this ideal community that required a spiritually transformed man to be able to properly inhabit. Is that, am I saying that correctly? No, you, yeah, yes, you are. Yes, you're saying that very well. The, the idea of the perfected man. Um, there's a lot we could say about Plato, but Plato's a very influential uh, guy in the whole New World Order scheme. If you think about Plato's Republic, for example, as the, the model for an ideal form of government. And then you look at what's happened from the time of the revolutionary period. You know, after the American Revolution, America is set up as a republic, okay? Uh, you, you have the, the French Revolution, the French Republic emerges, the Russian Revolution, there's a Soviet Republic, 
uh, over in China, the Republic of China, the Republic of Korea, the Republic of Cuba. You've got all of these republics being set up all over the world. And there's obviously, there's a common train of thought that is behind each of them. And it goes all back to Plato and the ancient philosophers. Um, and for, for Plato, Plato uh, talked about, at least according to um, Dr. Obadiah Harris, when we interviewed him at the Philosophic Research Society, which is Manley Hall Society, it's full of occult ideas and so on. But according to Dr. Harris, um, and Manley Hall wrote about this idea of the philosopher king. And apparently Plato dreamed of this philosopher king who seems to be a model for the Antichrist. And he's the man who has both wisdom and the man who has power. Because Plato's lament was that rulers seem to either have wisdom, but then they, they don't have any power to back it up, or they have a lot of power, but they're not wise. And so Plato's dream was, well, the ultimate ruler will be the man who has wisdom, the man who has power. And then we show in Riddles in Stone, when you go to Washington, D.C., and you're in front of the Masonic House of the Temple there, and they have two sphinxes out front, and you ask the Masons, what do they symbolize? One of them symbolizes wisdom, the other one symbolizes power, the perfect balance but it's a platonic philosophy that is represented. Um, yeah, I just want to make sure people understand that, that they're not talking, and, the, and leaders today that espouse this are, are not embracing some kind of merely secular, humanistic philosophy. There's something with spiritual power behind it, too. Oh, and yeah. most of them understand that, that, that there is a, there's a spiritual component that, that actually gives the energy to it, and it, and it is no mere philosophy. And Christians need to be aware of that. Well, when you look at Masonry, I mean, just to reinforce that point, Mike, in Masonry, if you're going to be a Freemason, you must believe in a higher power. Uh, you must believe in a God. Any God will do. You know, you can believe in any God you want to believe in. But you must believe in a God. They don't allow you to become a Mason and be an atheist. Uh, you, you must have a, a stated belief system and uh, and so so certainly they are they are requiring that you somehow or other tap into a supernatural force if you will and, and they would refer to it that way of course they call this the great architect of the universe and claim that you know all of the gods are uh, basically all different faces of one and the same force or one and the same being um, and that certainly certainly communicated by Albert Pike in his book, Morals and Dogma, which is the Masonic, you know, the ultimate Masonic handbook. But uh, that goes all the way back to ancient Egypt and, you know, the, the Egyptians, and you go into Amun-Ra, or, or the god Amon, the ancient god Amon, and uh, Pike talks about how Amon was the most ancient of the Egyptian gods. Well, he's this ram-headed God, you see him, he's got these ram horns coming out of his head. And if you study the history of it, Amon ultimately was combined with gods like Zeus and Jupiter and Baal, and then they would take the images of Zeus, right, the strong bearded man, uh, and then they would put ram horns on Zeus. And ultimately, all of this evolved into the 
images that appeared in the dark ages of the devil, Satan. Uh, and that's where all of that comes from. Uh, so Amon, or the, the ancient god from whom all the other gods emanate, according to Pike and the ancient philosophers, uh, is really Satan. And so it, it fits in with you know, the biblical view that the gods of the nations are in fact demons, demonic powers and principalities. Chris, I want to uh, uh, change gears here for a minute and talk a little bit about uh, your next documentary in that series called Riddles in Stone. Um, and to sort of set the stage a little bit for people, um, you begin in a very mysterious way with that documentary, talking about some of the strange architecture and features in the city of Washington, D.C., that should give people pause and some reason to think there's some story uh, behind this architecture. Can you very briefly just tell us some of the stranger things that you've seen, maybe without explaining them fully, but just letting us know why this should be such an intriguing topic for people? Well, we, we open up. We, we actually embrace uh, a lot of the... The, the well-known conspiracy theories about the design and architecture of Washington, D.C., and we, we try to throw those out there just to give the audience a taste of what they're in for uh, at the beginning. Um, you know, some of the, and in particular, probably the pentagram is the one issue, you know, the pentagram that's said to be in the street design north of the White House. That's the, that's, that's the number one topic in in that whole subject area. And, of course, everybody who's, who gets riddles in stone wants to know if we talk about the pentagram, and we do. Uh, and I think we talk about it in ways that, that I've never seen anybody else talk about it. But you're that, very careful on how you do it. You don't hit people over the head immediately with it. No. It's, it's, you, you build a very careful story, almost to the point that people are going to expect to see something like that, given all the other corroborating information. And then you put a twist on it that I don't want to give away. Right. That you take something that could be considered a weakness of the of the whole uh, conjecture about the significance of it, and you actually make it a strong point that gives further verification. And I'm, our listeners are just going to have to get riddles in stone to see what I'm talking about. But uh, the very thing that people question the veracity of the significance of this whole thing, you're able to. You found something that I just cannot believe you discovered that suddenly makes all the sense and puts all the pieces together. Uh, but, Can but I mention one part of it? Please. Well, the part that I would mention for anybody, because most people who are serious and who study this, the one question mark that they have when it comes to this issue is the fact that the pentagram in the street design is not a complete pentagram, that there is a, an opening or a space or a gap uh, where the pentagram is unfinished or broken, if you will. And we explain in the film, well, we give a series of reasons uh, from Masonic and occult sources why that could very well be the case. And that, that it, it could very well not have been, you know, just uh, that it could very well have been intentionally designed that way. And I won't say any more than that, Dr. Future, but I, I wanted to say that much for people who are wondering if they're going to get an answer to that question. Uh, we we provide some answers, I think, and they come again. When I found them, I was amazed where I found them. Uh, I was amazed at the time frame when these things come up, because it fits in with the time frame that the city of Washington D.C. was being designed, um, and and they come directly from Masonic sources. 
And if people are intrigued by Da Vinci Code but find it a little corny or a little trite, particularly if you're a Christian and you feel repulsed by some of the uh, conjectures that they make, um, if you're interested in real legitimate riddles that use sources throughout uh, literature, world history, art, things like this, then Riddles and Stone is the right uh, product for you to take a look at. And it's really for a Christian or those who are interested uh, in, in religion uh, and Christianity. Uh, it's really the right thing for them because it really helps put an understanding. And then you add this extra dimension of what the Bible has to say about what's going on. And the Bible is well equipped to explain uh, what's going on and, in fact, anticipated some of these activities. Right. Um, the the uh, uh, Riddles of Stone, I, some of the areas that you mentioned, not only do you mention the layout of the streets, but I, I was amazed at some of the bizarre architecture, uh, even in our own Library of Congress. Um, again, if you don't mind me giving away a little bit, what, one that I saw that, that uh, you had a brief clip of that I believe it said the... Uh, uh, the true Shekinah glory is man, or something to that effect. Yeah, the true Shekinah is man, uh, which is blatantly <laughs> heretical. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, that ain't in the Bible. That takes something that's uniquely of God and attributes it to man, and it's they're staring right over all sorts of tourists as they parade through the Library of Congress, looking right at them. And yeah, we, and and that's just one example of many that you uncover. Once you understand the, what we try to do is we try to explain the philosophies behind Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism, which are the two groups that are, that, whose teachings and influence and beliefs most greatly influence Washington, D.C., um, along with the influence of the Bavarian Illuminati, and we have a whole section on that where we talk about why the, this group, uh, in a very direct way, I believe, was uh, very influential on two of the main features in the D.C. layout, the pentagram and then the right triangle, uh, which is called Federal Triangle, uh, which is kind of the centerpiece for the entire city. But those are Pythagorean symbols, and Pythagoras was the, uh, was the favored philosopher of the revolutionary, revolutionary groups, according to Dr. James Billington in his book, fire in the minds of men. They had what he called the Pythagorean passion, and they named all of these things after Pythagorean symbols and images and so on. And uh, Adam Weishaupt, who founded the Illuminati movement, um, his final treatise that he wrote just prior to the French Revolution was called Pythagoras. So uh, Pythagoras had that strong of an influence. Now you've got Pierre uh, or uh, Pierre Lanchon, the designer, who comes from France, where the Illuminati had gone in and influenced the, the Freemasons and the Jacobin movement, uh, L'Enfant comes to America with the Marquis de Lafayette, who fought with George Washington. They both did. And then after the war, Washington is working now with L'Enfant as the architect for D.C., and we find these Pythagorean symbols that really... Uh, symbolized the whole revolutionary uh, spirit and the revolutionary thinking that was going on in the world, in America and France, uh, and eventually throughout Europe at that time. Uh, and that's not to say that that uh, 
that all of the American revolutionaries necessarily agreed with what was happening in France. Many of them did not, especially George Washington, because he felt that the, the Jacobins were bloodthirsty and so on, so he didn't want to have anything to do with them. But uh, it's very, very interesting, the connections that you find um, and, and the philosophies behind them. But that's what that's what's being communicated throughout the city of Washington, D.C. It's, uh, it's Pythagorean, Platonic, Hermetic philosophy. And Hermetic philosophy, we trace, and, and they trace, the, those who practice and believe the ancient mysteries, they trace it all the way back to ancient Atlantis, uh, where they believe that uh, Hermes is another name. That's where the term Hermetic comes from. But they believe Hermes is another name for Enoch. Uh, Enoch in the Bible, who walked with God and he was not. Well, they believe that Enoch was the first great king of Atlantis. They have all this you know, mythology around Enoch, and of course it's not biblical, but uh, it's said that the ancient mystery religion came out of Atlantis. Now, you were mentioning the Library of Congress. Most people have not been in the Library of Congress. I'd never even seen the inside of it until I got there. And I have to be honest with you, if you went there and you could take the Library of Congress and submerge it in the ocean, you know, 20,000 leagues beneath the sea and leave it there for 30 years, and scuba divers went down and they saw it, they would swear that they had found the lost city of Atlantis. Because that wow. is that is exactly how the Library of Congress is designed. It is a it's like going into another world. I, I wonder how much it would have re resembled the the Library at Alexandria. I assume a lot of the same information was also embedded there. I you know what I wouldn't be surprised if 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 there were you know, close correlations. I mean that whole thing is a pagan, mystical, arcane. You've got zodiacs all over the place. You got these strange mythological figures everywhere. You have these uh, uh, Lucifera goddesses, uh, the ancient goddess Diana Lucifera, where she's standing there holding a torch aloft, which is one of the models for the Statue of Liberty, uh, Diana the Light Bearer. And you have these, you have several of them in the library that are standing there holding in their lamps at the end of their uh, torches. Uh, it, it, it's, I mean, it's just incredible. You could spend all day in there looking around and still not be able to see all the details and the color and the intricate imagery that they've etched into the walls and so on. You, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, uh, closed conspiracies or open conspiracies. I guess the best way I would describe this would be a veiled conspiracy in that one has to go look for this information, but if one goes through the literature... Uh, one is very patient to go through the writing of the classic authors and our founding fathers and others. You can piece together this kind of work, and in fact, you demonstrate that in your work. Oh, yeah. Anybody, the, the stuff that we show people in Riddles in Stone is stuff that, uh, you know, it's from George Washington's papers at the Library of Congress or the letters of Thomas Jefferson and things like that, things that anybody could go and look up, very official documents, uh, the book we quote, Fire in the Minds of Men, that's mentioned by President George Bush in his 2005 inaugural address. He, he, re he recites directly from it. Oh, yeah. He quotes from the title. And then, then the principles that he's espousing come directly from that book. Uh, 
and and it's written by Dr. James Billington. Now, you would think that Billington was some guy in a basement somewhere with an old typewriter hammering out his conspiracy theories about world history, but that's not it at all. He's the librarian of Congress. He's... He's the 13th librarian of Congress. And He's I just a, got that book, by the way, wow. after seeing it in your documentary. And uh, when he says his key point that America was founded not by those of the Enlightenment, like people think, but by the occult traditions coming out of Germany, that really hits the nail on the head and makes your point for you, doesn't it? Well, he, what he says, just to be clear, uh, Dr. Futures, he says the, the revolutionary faith, not, not, no, and, of course, the revolutionary faith ultimately came to America, but he doesn't say America was found. He's very careful not to attribute these things to the American revolutionaries, although I believe you could attribute a lot of this to people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine. Uh, the, the American revolutionaries were somewhat divided. Half of them were very much in tune with what the... the the Illuminati and, and the, the Jacobins and those guys were into and what they believed. But uh, people like George Washington, uh, probably uh, Madison and, and guys like that and, and Andrew Jackson were not so much into that side of it, the more dark occult. But well, yeah, when he's saying that, that the revolutionary faith didn't grow out of the French Enlightenment, but out of the pro-romanticism and occultism of Germany. He's specifically talking about the Bavarian Illuminati. Uh, and so when you have people, and we interview a number of Freemasons in the film, and you have people like Masonic apologist Brett Morris saying that he thinks the Illuminati lasted about 10 years and then they went out of style or whatever, um, uh, that idea is smashed by somebody like Dr. Billington, who shows that they were very influential and they continue to be influential throughout all of these revolutions that took place across Europe and then went over to China and Cuba and so on. That It's the same philosophy that's driving this movement around the world. Uh, one thing I want to ask you, uh, Chris, uh, something that I've noticed that plays a central role in a lot of your documentaries is... Um, the central role of the Freemasons. Uh, it seems like you found their hand, handprints on a lot of things, different uh, areas that you cover, uh, and it's not just you that's noticed that. I know there's many other uh, uh, secular uh, people that do research and dramatic work. Uh, even uh, you know the recent movies uh, have, have shown about some kind of caretaker role of the Masons and looking over our famous structures in America and things like that. Um, that is a real lightning rod as far as this whole concept of, of Freemasons, very controversial within even people of faith to talk about this. Can you explain things a little bit further about um, who you think they are, what role they play, how should we look at all this from a Christian perspective? Well, it's very, very important for, uh, for Christians to understand Freemasonry because Freemasonry has for... Uh, you know, for well over a hundred years, infiltrated Christian churches. Uh, you've got thousands and thousands of Freemasons who have specifically sought out positions of leadership as pastors and elders and deacons and so on in church groups throughout the Southeast, especially uh, and across America. Uh, I ran into 
a whole, in fact, when I was first studying Freemasonry when I was out in California, I was, uh, I was noticing that at the church that I was going to, there were a lot of really bizarre doctrinal issues going on. And to make a long story short, I encountered a number of Freemasons there who were part of, who were deeply embedded in the church, part of the leadership there, and they were espousing all of these New Age Freemasonic doctrines. And I confronted them, you know, with scriptures, and tried to stay away from conspiracy theories I had heard, and just talk to them about biblical issues, you know, where they were promoting many paths to God and how we should embrace all religions and this kind of thing. And, uh, and this was very early in my Christian walk, but I knew enough to know, you know, Paul writing to the Corinthians, saying, I tell you that the sacrifice which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And he says, and I would not, I would not that you have fellowship with demons. And he says, you cannot eat bread from the table of the Lord and from the table of demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons. Uh, you know, do we provoke God to anger? Are we stronger than He, and so on? Um, and so I and so I said to this particular uh, deacon in the church, who was a Mason and a thirty-second degree Mason, I said, just based upon what you're telling me about Freemasonry, that's contrary to what the Word of God tells us. Uh, so how can you promote this? belief system and be a part of it and so on and be a leader in the church uh, and, and, and be a Christian and still have to do with this whole thing. And that, that stirred up a whole conflict in the church that I was attending at the time. But that church went slowly, one step at a time, down an ecumenical path. In Megiddo 1, when we released it, we have a, set, a small section in there where we talk about Freemasonry. Nevertheless, when it aired on Sky Angel, that was probably the one section that we would get the most phone calls about because people would call from all over the country and say, I've got, you know, my dad is a Freemason, my uncle's a Freemason, I've got a, a cousin or a nephew or somebody who's in, getting involved in Masonry or is involved in Masonry, I'm trying to find out how to, you know, witness to them, et cetera, and so on. Uh, I remember having a woman call me probably a year, year and a half ago, telling me that the pastor of her church was a Mason and that he was actively trying to get other Freemasons to come and join the church there. So they And they were forming kind of a, a Masonic nucleus there in the Whoa. leadership, okay, and trying to take the church in a new direction. These things are still going on. Uh, you've got... Uh, you know, the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, in the last two years, released a whole lot of documentaries where they were trying to to brush away the conspiracy theories about Freemasonry, say, oh, that's all nonsense, really. The Masons are good guys, they're just American patriots, etc., and so on, and don't believe those silly conspiracy theories. Uh, you had in January of 2007, the new Congress, the Democratic Congress, uh, releases a uh, the oh, House Resolution 33, which was specifically engineered to honor the Freemasons of America. This is a year ago. A uh, little over a year ago they did this. Yeah, you can look that up on the Internet. Yeah, it's on the Internet. We show it in Riddles and Stone. 
but you can find it. But it's in that House resolution. Now, this is the American government is acknowledging that most of the founding fathers of America were Freemasons. Most of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were Freemasons. Now, you hear Masonic apologists come out, and they try to diffuse all of this information and say, oh, well, that's not true, and this kind of thing. But it doesn't get more official than the U.S. Congress. Uh, it doesn't get more official than that. And if the Masons were no longer important or if they were on the decline or this kind of thing, why does the Congress, when we have so many problems in the country, the new Congress comes into office and they have nothing better to do than to come up with, within a month now of taking uh, power, they come up with this House resolution to honor the Freemasons? You know, what's curious, too, is that they've done a lot to try to distance themselves from religious organizations and try to take religion out of regular workings of government. But this is the closest thing to it when they go back and particularly recognize one type of pseudo-religious group as opposed to others to spell out specifically. Yeah, and, and on that note, uh, Dr. Future, you, it, it, as you saw toward the beginning of Riddles in Stone, we show the uh, cornerstone-laying ceremony for the U.S. Capitol when the Masons did a reenactment of it back in, well, it's been some years, but within the last 10 years or so, I'm trying to remember, I think it was in 1995 or 96, but anyway, when they did that, you've got all these Masons there in their Masonic aprons and so on, and they're, they're lifting up their prayers, they're, they're able to have their ceremonies, and they're able to acknowledge their God, uh, and nobody else is able to do that, but they let the Freemasons do it because that has become the religion of America. It is this Masonic religion, this embracing of all the gods as one and the same. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's the religion that is promoted on Fox News. That's the religion that's promoted in, uh, you know, in the military, uh, where they'll often talk about God and so on, but they make it clear that they want all the gods included. Uh, Chris, you have actually mentioned uh, earlier in our discussion uh, Mr. Manley P. Hall, and I know another gentleman you talk about uh, in, in your documentaries as well as another critical figure by the name of Albert Pike. Can you explain to our listeners, if they're not completely familiar with who these people are, and I would imagine they're, that they're not as familiar as they should be, even if they do have a casual understanding. Can you explain what the key contributions these gentlemen have done to the, to the work that you've uncovered? Well, they're, they're probably the, I, I might call them the 19th and 20th century fathers of American Freemasonry. Uh, Albert Pike is, is the designer of Scottish Rite Masonry, um, which is the most popular form of Freemasonry in America. Usually when you hear about a, a president or a politician or, or a, uh, a famous leader in America who was a Mason, he's usually a Scottish Rite Mason. And sometimes the Masons will argue and they'll say, oh, well, he was just over the southern jurisdiction. But the southern jurisdiction, when they say that, is based in Washington, D.C., it's right there in the House of the Temple, uh, you know, right in the midst of all of the political epicenter of Washington, D.C. And so it is the most powerful uh, arm of Freemasonry anywhere in America. And the Sovereign Grand Commander, I mean, the one of the 
more popular modern sovereign grand commanders, commanders was a guy named Seafred Kleinconnect, and uh, we actually show a picture of him at some point. He initiated President Ronald Reagan while he was president, initiated Reagan as an honorary 33rd degree Mason. So that's the kind of influence that uh, that the sovereign grand commander of uh, Scottish Rite Masonry can have. I, I, I don't know if I shared with you a, a, a little uh, trivia tidbit I found immediately after uh, an earlier interview we did with you for Future Quake about Mr. KleinConnect. Sure. Uh, did, did I mention about the role of his son within NASA? You did. I remember that. I think it's very interesting. Most people don't know the, the key role that the Department of Defense has over NASA and that they actually have by statute a requirement and a capability to review any kind of data that comes from outer space that for some reason has a military uh, security issue, whatever that might be, um, they have a, a right to be able to review it and to classify this information. And the gentleman who's the gatekeeper that's the first person to see anything that comes out of NASA, any of their results, uh, and decides what the public gets to see is, believe it or not, the son of Mr. KleinConnect. And, uh, really? in fact, yes, I was surprised, and if I had not known your documentary, I wouldn't have been able to put two and two together. But uh, it's, it's very ironic to know that every man who has set foot on the moon uh, is a verifiable 33rd degree Mason, as well as every mission commander in NASA. Now, I know Whoa. that sounds incredibly conspiratorial, but it's easily well, documentable. If the facts lead there, then the facts lead there. May or may not be that significant, but I just find it very well, curious. Well, it actually is, I, I think, because if you go to the House of the Temple, I remember when I was there, we have some footage of it, but when you go downstairs underground, they have uh, they have an inner room where they have display cases, but they have a whole wall dedicated to NASA and the space program. And they... The Masons take a lot of pride in the space program. They, they, in fact, they claim a kind of ownership to it, if that makes any sense. Uh, and uh, well, I mean, just, with their worship of the stars and what you talk about, their their reverence for for the star Sirius and other things like this, right. it would make only sense that they would want to be involved in something if it had anything but just a mystical significance to them, to have some involvement of being able to touch the stars, even if in a metaphorical sense. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and Albert Pike, just to round things out with him, the guy who designed all these higher degrees in Scottish Rite Masonry, and whose book, Morals and Dogma, they continue to teach, even though they use an abbreviated form of it called A Bridge to Light, uh, but that is continually taught to all Scottish Rite Freemasons, um, which becomes very disturbing because Pike was greatly influenced by uh, you know, a uh, an occultist, a guy who was in no uncertain way a Luciferian, a Satanist, uh, named Eliphas Levi. And uh, Pike in Morals and Dogma quotes whole passages and even chapters from Levi's work, and he puts them into Morals and Dogma. Um, and in fact, one of his, uh, you know, Pike says two things. He says that the ultimate purpose of masonry is a continual progression toward the light. And then he says, in his book, and he's quoting Eliphas Levi, he says, Lucifer, is it he who bears the light? Doubt it not. So he acknowledges that masonry is about moving toward the light, but then he makes it clear that Lucifer is the one who bears that light. Uh, 
and uh, P uh, Pike teaches in Morals and Dogma a principle that uh, uh, I believe is clearly embraced by the, the three great teachers of the 19th and 20th century in this regard, Pike, Madame Blavatsky, and then Manley P. Hall, who was the second that she talked about. But what all three of these did was their writings, their books and so on that they compiled were compilations of going and looking at ancient manuscripts and ancient cultures and traditions and beliefs and so on and amassing all of this data about the ancient mystery religions and, and compiling them in their books. For Pike, it was Morals and Dogma. Blavatsky, it was The Secret Doctrine. And then Manley Hall, it was uh, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. But those three works are very similar uh, in terms of what they did and, and how they were influenced. But what Pike taught and what Manley Hall taught is what Madame Blavatsky describes as demon est deus inversus. That's a, the phrase that means the devil is God inverted. And basically what they do is they go back to the Garden of Eden and they have God and then they have the serpent who shows up. And they reverse their roles. And they say, well, God was in fact the devil and the serpent was really God, the angel of light who came to set man free by getting him to partake of the tree of knowledge. Uh, and so that is why they crave knowledge, and that's what science is. Science is, the word science means knowledge, knowledge obtained through observation and so on. And so that's why they're so big into scientific development and going to the stars, and it's about achieving knowledge of things good and evil for the advancement and the ascendancy ultimately into their own Godhood, their own deification. Well, you know, I look forward to you, maybe if the time is right, exploring further the depth of what this Manly P. Hall person has done, because uh, your connections with uh, the mysterious people who underwrote his work, uh, the connections straight up to the White House through the Vice President and ultimately to FDR, which I'm sure you're going to probably explore further in your next uh, documentary that you're working on. Right. Um, there's a whole lot to be mined there, I think. And and the key, if I could summarize things, because we're coming to the end of our, of our discussion here, is that basically there's more than meets the eye on what's going on uh, with our country. An and with a careful review, study, research, reviewing materials, particularly uh, your products that you've done, your documentaries, um, the Christian has the proper tools and information to understand the workers at play in the end game that is coming together. And I know your series is slowly unveiling that. Um, but but let me ask you, and I, then I want to just sort of summarize with some uh, new products to let people know what you have that are coming out. But what, what is a Christian to do with the information, the, the, the shocking information that you provide them in your work? What are they to do with it? How, how is a way that they can constructively build on this awareness? Well, if, if they're... Uh if they're if they're dealing with the the secret mystery series um, parts one and two, what those do is is uh, those really challenge a viewer. Those are intended to be uh, documentaries that provoke conversation about the differences between biblical Christianity and what you know other 
beliefs and, and systems of belief that are that have come about and taken hold in America, what those things are about and what's the difference between Christianity and these others. And you really see that being discussed in the New Atlantis and then we, we take it a step further in Riddles and Stone. But it's 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 uh, to present tools that can be used by Christians, one, to inform them, but then also so that if you've got family members or friends and so on who, let's say, aren't normally open to discussing these things, you could show them these documentaries that look like something from the History Channel, and that could then open up a door of discussion uh, to where they'd be more available to watching this and then talking about it, and then that could hopefully present witnessing opportunities uh, for you uh, as a result. That's really what they're designed to do at this level. Now, ultimately, where the series is going to go is to bring it into a, a biblical, a Bible prophecy context, ultimately full on, so that uh, you know, if you gave the whole series once it's done, and we think it's going to be four, maybe five parts, uh, somebody would watch parts one, two, three, and they'd see slowly, one step at a time, things developing more and more of an apocalyptic tone, and then when they get to the, the last part of the series, then they'll realize, oh my gosh, here's how all of this fits into God's great plan, uh, and that yes, all of these things are leading the world to Armageddon, and hopefully their thought would be, I need to get right with God, I need to, you know, if, if you're not a believer, that person would be compelled to repent of their sin and put their faith in the Son of God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and come to salvation uh, by faith in Him. Well, I can tell you, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, this is an incredible witnessing tool for family members that are skeptics, people, co-workers. They will be riveted by these, and will actually build in them an understanding. They'll know more than, unfortunately, many Christians do about the world around them, and, and I believe will lead them to the Lord. And there's a lot of Christians that need to be shaken up and see that the uh, prince of this world is very active today, and also we know our, our Lord Jesus is very active today. But things are coming to a head, and things are coming soon uh, to a conclusion. And people need to be aware of these days. They need to stop their uh, their petty amusements and spend time looking at these kind of things and being ready uh, to, to uh, meet their Savior. Uh, in the last minute or two that we have, can you give us just a, a quick mention of the projects that you have underway that uh, we'll be wrapping up soon that hopefully we'll have you back for to discuss? Well, the one that we're hoping to have done here in the next few weeks is called the Kinsey Syndrome. This documentary chronicles the the work and the influence of Alfred Kinsey and how he really almost single-handedly helped to transform society from its original Judeo-Christian values into uh, the postmodern um, viewpoint that many Americans hold today. And it, it largely happened through his views on human sexuality. Of course, Kinsey was responsible for his uh, sex reports of the 1940s and early 50s, that which then inspired Hugh Hefner to launch Playboy magazine. And we show how this whole agenda really fits into this uh, plan for a new world order, but it's the, the new world order morality that goes with this global society. Uh, and that's in a nutshell what Kinsey Syndrome is about. Then we're working on uh, two other documentaries, uh, one called A Lamp in the Dark, that deals with the, uh, the history of, uh, of the Bible that we're very excited about. A lot of powerful information there that I think a lot of people will be interested in. And with that is uh, Eye of the Phoenix, 
which is the uh, the next part in the Secret Mystery series. And uh, Eye of the Phoenix covers the history of the the dollar bill and the mysterious symbols associated with it. We've really uncovered, I think, a lot of exciting information that I've never seen anywhere else before. Uh, so I'm, I'm very eager to, to get that one underway and, and to get it all together and have it released. Well, I tell you, I don't know how you do all this. It's just amazing, but I'm so thankful. And uh, you're going to have a lot of material for the for the future household and the bionic household to be reviewing. And, and all of our listeners, I just want to uh, implore you to uh, seek out these materials, sit down with some other Christian believers, watch them, study them. Uh, it'll really change your view on things. And lastly, can you tell us how our listeners can find your products, where they can find out about more about what you're doing? Sure. Our main site is adullumfilms.org, and adullum is spelled A, as an apple, A-D-U-L-L-A-M. It's like the cave adullum in the Bible. Uh, adullumfilms.org, or, if you can't remember that, remember filmforjesus.com, filmforjesus.com, F-I-L-M-F-O-R-J-E-S-U-S dot C-O-M, filmforjesus.com. That's our website. We've got some articles there. Uh, we've got our documentaries there. You can watch some trailers for them. And uh, we've even got some other documentaries that we recommend as well uh, that we carry. Well, uh, and I'll ha- we'll have that link at futurequake.com too. If you missed that, we'll have that there. You can you can pull it. And uh, listeners, we'd like to have some feedback from you after you've seen these products and let us know what you think about them. Uh, and and uh, brother Chris, it's been wonderful to have you here. We hope you come back and visit us again soon. Uh, you have so much to say. We could just fill a month easily mm-hmm. with uh, the information you could share with us. But I want our listeners to check out what you have to say. And uh, we're, inter- we're entering very interesting days ahead. And I can't wait to see uh, how you put all the pieces together for us. Well, praise the Lord, you guys. God bless you both, and thank you for having me on the show. Nothing can change the shape of things to come. Good evening. I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I, and I, am Tom Bionic. I almost said that for you, because they get longer and longer every I know, time I, you do it. I know, I, I want to make it dramatic each time, you know. Uh-huh, but yeah. But it's like, you got, you, you can't be the same every week. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I understand. I'm looking, <laughs> I'm already that looking forward to. That look says I don't understand. I'm already looking forward to next week's Tom Bionic. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to have you here. Yeah. Um, 
This, uh, this week, uh, this is the segment we do called Tomorrow's Tremors, or Today's Review of the Future's News. Mm-hmm. And this is where we review some of the news items that sort of have a future quake twist to them. Maybe some uh, stories that you didn't see or didn't pick up on or aren't covered much in the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. but sort you, of won't see a, this, you won't see any of these stories in the New York Times. Sort of have a futuristic uh, issue uh, to them. Yeah. But, first of all, I just want to uh, uh, mention that our announcer has a quick announcement about yeah. futurequake.com. Tell so, them about it, Merv. With no further ado, tell them what they'll hear. Futurequake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Okay, uh, we're back again, and we also want to invite you, what, to send some emails to us, right? Yeah, send us an email. At uh, Dr. Future at futurequake.com. That's right, and you'll find the rest of the details from our announcer here, and then we'll be back right back with our Future Quake Tomorrow's Tremors news. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at Dr. Future at futurequake.com. That's D R F U T U R E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, on oh, to our news stories now. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, Tom, do you want to start first with our uh, stories? Okay, uh, we need to get a gong for, you know, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, a lot of people are ringing gongs over our production oh. right now. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, um... I think it's time for us to jump right into our stories. I hope everyone enjoyed our guest this week yeah. on Future Quake. Uh, Monday uh, through Thursday, we usually run our guest on. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, uh, we do on our Friday, special. we do the news. And we do our special here. So with no further ado, jump in and give us our first story for tomorrow's tremors. Well, let me see. i got a couple here in front of me. I'm just trying to go with the, with, with the one that's the most, most mellow and then kind of you got Go a crescendo? Up into a big crescendo, yeah. Okay. So we'll start with this one. Uh, it's it's by Samantha Gross, Gross from the uh, Associated Press. Um, energy loom, energy fears looming. New survivalists repair. Prepare. Prepare. I don't know what's with me. I think I had too much Dr. Pepper. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've been practicing your delayed intro too much. Uh, you got to go with what's important, bud. Uh huh. Well, just give us a story. <laughs> A few years ago, Kathleen Brault was just another suburban grandma, driving countless hours every week, stopping for lunch at McDonald's, buying clothes at the mall, watching TV in the evenings. That was before Brault heard an author talk about the bleak future of the world's oil supply. Now, she's preparing for the world as we know it to disappear. Brault cut her driving time in half. She switched to a diet of locally grown foods near her upstate New York home and lost 70 pounds. She sliced up her credit cards, good idea for anybody, banished her television, also a good idea for anybody, and swore off airplane travel. She began relying on a wood-burning stove. She says, I was panic-stricken. Her voice was shaking, devastated, depressed, afraid, vulnerable, weak, alone, just terrible. Convinced the planet's oil supply is dwindling and the world's economies are, are heading for a crash. Some people around the world are moving on to homesteads, learning to live off the land, conserving fuel, and in some cases stocking up on guns they expect to use to defend themselves and their supplies from desperate crowds of people who didn't prepare. This is not a happy story. No. The exact number of people taking steps is impossible to determine, 
but anecdotal evidence suggests that the, move, the movement has been gaining momentum in the last few years. These energy survivalists are not leading some sort of a green revolution meant to save the planet. Many of them believe it is too late for that. Seeing signs in soaring fuel costs and food prices and a faltering U.S. economy and are largely focused on saving themselves. Okay, let's see. This is a long, this is a long story. I'm going to skip down here a little bit. Uh, some members argue that there will be no financial crash, but a slow slide into, hard, into harder times. Some believe the federal government will respond to the loss of energy security with a clampdown on personal freedoms. We're kind of seeing that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Others simply don't trust that the government can maintain basic services in the face of an energy crisis. The powers that be, they've determined, will, largely be, will be largely powerless to stop what is to come. Determined to guard themselves from potentially harsh times ahead, Lynn Marie and her husband have already planted an orchard of, orchard of about 40 trees and built a greenhouse on their seven and a half acres. They have built their own irrigation system. They've begun to raise chicken and pigs, and, and they've learned to slaughter them. The couple have gotten rid of their TV and instead have been reading dusty old books published in their grandparents' era, books that explain the simpler lifestyle that they are trying to revive. Lynn Marie has been teaching herself how to make soap. Hmm. I like homemade soap. Do you really? I do. What's special about homemade soap? It really feels good on your skin and you feel cleaner. Mm -hmm. Have yeah. you ever done homemade soap? Well, it's manly, yes, but I like it too. <laughs> so Ari Spring, excuse me. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. All right. <clears throat> By 2012, they oh, expect you to power... about her husband. Oh, her husband, concerned about one day being unable to get medications, has been training to become an herbalist. By 2012, they expect to power their property with solar, pan solar panels and produce their own meat, milk, and vegetables. I would think the animals would help in that production. Of solar panels? No, they said they were going to produce their own meat, milk, and vegetables. I would think they would need help from the animals for that. Well, you know, I mean... Okay. Maybe I read too much in that. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like, you know, she's growing her own vegetables out of her shoes or something. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. Yeah, when things start to fall fall apart, they expect their children and grandchildren will come back home and help them work the land. She envisions a day when the family may have to decide whether to turn needy people away from their door. People will be unprepared, she said, and we can imagine marauding hordes. Way out in western Idaho? Well, people Nobody's may out there to maraud. Their food. I, you know, and there's a lot of other people out there doing the same thing, probably. That's the irony mm -hmm. of it. But, you know, when you do have something like that, if those days ever come, heaven forbid, mm -hmm. when they come, people are going to be looking for your stuff, mm -hmm. and it's better you think about it now. Yeah. How are you going to respond yeah. to them? Whatever the shape of things yet to come, she said, she's done what she can to prepare. Wow. That's, um, there's not a lot of happiness in that well, story. Well, I know she also says here she hopes to someday band together with her neighbors to form a self-sufficient community. Mm -hmm. Women will always be having babies, she knows, and she imagines her skills as a midwife will always be in demand. Well, she's uh, a midwife. Huh. So, you know, there's one thing to really be said for this is that that kind of lifestyle activity does not leave any kind of room for conglomerates or for monopolies or anybody else to tell nope. you how to live your life. Nope, you're just kind of doing it your your way. You're using the, the things locally at your availability. Very much yeah. as the uh, founders of this of this nation did their yeah. things. Yeah. I mean, you're trading freely with other people. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, you're not going to have an OPEC or anybody else hold you over a barrel. I mean, we talk about living as free people, but often we put ourselves under economic shackles we don't even need to do. Yeah. So there's a lot to be said for that lifestyle. Although I don't True. like to get dirty. I don't know if that would be a problem. In that yeah, you know, style. that's what I was thinking. You know, when I said, hey, let's plant a garden, yeah. you're like, yeah. Do yeah. that means I have to go outside? I would need some form of air conditioning. <laughs> we know. have to get you like one of them $1,000 space helmets. The first 23 years I did without it, and I've yeah. sort of grown to like it now. So, you know. yeah. In fact, I would give up like TV or anything mm -hmm. else to keep an air conditioner. But wow. that's just me. Yeah. Wow. Well, All forms of communication. Well, since I don't, I don't ever watch the TV that's in my house. There's actually two. Well, there's uh, three technically. I mean, you don't watch Springer. I don't watch any TV, man. You don't watch Springer. Um, what about uh, really none of the talk shows in the afternoon? Zero. Oh, that's. I I have a couple of books I read. Uh -huh. One especially I reread a TV, lot. The movie of the week. Yeah, the TV guide. Yes. Yeah. Lots of talk about St. Paul and the TV guide, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, can we can we switch gears from uh, primitive to space age? Okay. Okay. This is a sort of an intriguing story that Doctor Future has here. Um, one way mission to Mars. Uh, U.S. soldiers will go. This is one from way. One way. Yeah, you heard me right. One way. <laughs> one way. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, sometimes co-hosts could be nominated for that. This <laughs> this goes from the Universe Today, uh, universetoday.com. Uh, it says an article published in Universe Today back in March of this year uh, detailed a former NASA engineer Jim McLean's idea for a one-way, one-person mission to Mars, and it generated a lot of interest. The many comments uh, on the uh, subject posted here uh, in, in numerous websites like ABC News range from full support to complete disbelief of the idea. Hmm. McLean's concept has literally gone around the world, and a journalist from Spain, Javier Yanes, who writes for the newspaper Publico, shared with me his correspondence uh, with a U.S. soldier stationed in Afghanistan who says that battle-hardened soldiers would be the perfect choice to send on a mission of no return to a new world. Uh, Specialist First Class, I'm guessing. William Ruth III said he and the men of the 101st Airborne Division are ready and willing to go. Uh, he wrote, uh, while reading Jim McLean and Nancy Atkinson's thoughts on space colonization, I started to realize that uh, we have lost our way. We have become so consumed by petty differences and dislikes of others that we have forgotten our predestiny of something better. Uh, the thing that crosses my mind is like, they're going to live out their their days on Mars? Is yeah. That, really? Like Robinson Crusoe, as primitive as can be. No phone, no light, no motor car. Well, there's a kind of a problem with that. What? You can't plant anything there. Everything's, you know, yeah. dead. And Hence, one way. Well, well, we'll wait to what the rover up there tells us right now, the polar lander. It's oh, that's right. All right, all right. I, I shouldn't okay. interrupt you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah you're, you're dissing the article. Uh, a little bit, actually, here. yes. Um, <laughs> What is the something better that Ruth envisions? Military personnel from different countries joining together to make the ultimate sacrifice of forging the way to establish an outpost on another world like Mars. Here is an out-of-the-box idea, he writes. Let's the heroes uh, of all our countries for once risk the ultimate sacrifice for something greater than one man's idea. Maybe uh, let these men and women that rise every morning and say today, I will stand for something. And say, evil will not prevail, not on my watch. For once, let them volunteer for us all. You never know, mankind, the human race. It might just catch on if we let it. 
don't know if you want to catch on too much, but that's that's, a, uh, that's, that's fairly nutty. Yeah. Well, uh, Ruth continues. If we falter at the hand of death, death and danger, or will we do now what so many uh, uh, of all, all of us in world history have done before? NASA, of all thinking society, should understand this. Um, so Ruth says, "His 15 years of military is preparing for such a mission." Um, I am no fool and no stranger to what some might call high risk. So, you know, if he had a kid, you know what they'd call him? What? A, a, a young, a young infant. They call him Baby Ruth. Yeah. Thank you for your input. <laughs> thank you for your. I think that's a nutty idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Ruth doesn't agree with McLean's mission of uh, idea of a one-person mission to Mars, but supports the one-way idea. Uh, he agrees with NASA that it's completely dangerous and potentially deadly for anyone who sets out on this voyage. But since then, when has that ever stopped anyone? You know, I sort of consider our voyage every week on Future Quake a similar doomed mission. You know, it's funny you say that, because so do I. It's a week-long mission into yes. oblivion. Uh, probably the only greater hazards are experienced by our listeners yes. every week. Like radiation therapy for everybody. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Without the healing properties. Uh, the military would never send someone out alone, but Ruth thinks multi a multiple ship mission is the way to proceed. Uh, with three or four smaller vessels, with four to six crew members each. Um, he admits that uh, the others might see sending soldiers into space as more like an invasion or occupation, which I don't know why, if there's no way that you're occupying. Um, yeah, no kidding. So, anyway, that's one person's view of a one-person, one-way voyage uh, to Mars. So... Well, that's... Um, and for those in our audience who believe we never went to the moon, it would seem even more preposterous. Do we have people in our that. audience that believe that? Well, I'm sure. You think so? Well, in fact, even our uh, documentary film, filmmaker, Bart Sebrell from Nashville, um, did a funny thing happen on the way to the moon about that very topic. Really? Well, moon. you know, it's funny we're even talking about this. I um, I was working in a... I got a new job, and about the first weekend there, I was talking with one of my coworkers, and we're talking and talking and talking, and... You know, he was a guy who sort of, you know, gets into a little bit of kind of the far-out theology and stuff, and that came up. That very thing came up. Yeah, you know, I don't know why, but I had a, a friend of mine who uh, just now started listening again. I grew up with him. Mm-hmm. We were friends decades ago and lost touch, mm-hmm. and first few minutes he brought that same subject up. The like, moon? do you think we really landed on the moon? Really? So. It's a litmus test. It's still around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have another story for us. I do. It's also, this one's also not very happy, to be honest. Okay. You know, I'm glad our listeners are not wasting their time listening to other channels mm-hmm. and other mindless stories about the stock market. You could go that. somewhere and listen about Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan, or you can listen here to what's really interesting. They may be sitting in traffic right now and learning something really useful right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, give them some more usefulness. All right. Put your goggles on, folks. Here it comes. This one is entitled, Bush Plans Iran Airstrike by August. Uh, it was written by Mohammed Cohen. That's an interesting name right there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, for, for those listeners who didn't quite get that, Mohammed, of course, is an, is an Islamic name, and Cohen is a Jewish name. Are so, you pre-chewing your intellectual food form right there? I am, in fact. Okay. A little bit. On well, with the story. I, I just said it real quick, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. So, could have gone right mm-hmm. away. Yeah. 
The George W. Bush administration plans to launch an airstrike against Iran within the next two months, an informed source tells Asia Times Online, echoing other reports that have surfaced in the media in the United States recently. Yeah, that's true. I've read a bunch of stuff about that. Two key U.S. senators briefed on the attack planned to go public with their opposition to the move, according to the source, but their projected New York Times op-ed piece has yet to appear. The source, a retired U.S. career diplomat and former assistant secretary of state, so it's not just anybody. Right. It's some guys who, you know, know something. Uh, still active in the foreign affairs community, speaking anonymously, said last week that the U.S. plans an airstrike against the Iran Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. The airstrike would target the headquarters of the IRGC's elite Quds Force. How do you say that? Quds. Quds? Yeah. Quds Force. I think El Quds, isn't that Jerusalem? That's what they say in the Islamic world. Oh, you know, you're right. I think so. You're right, you're right. El Quds. The, the Q threw me. Yeah. Um, with an estimated strength of up to 90,000 fighters, the Quds' stated mission is to spread Iran's revolution of 1979 throughout the region. Targets could include IRGC garrisons in southern and west, southwestern Iran. You know, now, it's funny. I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who, uh, he's a very old gentleman, but he ended up being a uh, actually a missionary in, in Iran, of all places, really? back in 1970. And, uh, Was he, he Zoroastrian? No. Oh, it's Christian. Christian. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not from there. Oh, to all, there, right, to all there. right, all right. And uh, he said he was he smoked a pipe and you know kind of waved his hand around, big poofy hair, uh -huh. you know. And uh, he said he would just talk about a straight talker, you know. He said between between puffs of his pipe, he said, and then I was in uh, Guam for a year, and every single darn person in that place was possessed. And he just went on and on and on about the crazy stuff he saw in Guam. Which uh, actually happens to be uh, one of the main IRGC garrisons. In Guam? Uh, Guam. Q-U-A-M. Not okay. Guam. Not the U.S. territory. Yeah, not, not Guam. Thought, why, is, why is Guam coming in here? I didn't know there was a Guam. Well, you know, we didn't go to the moon, but they actually took Guam and put it. It's actually in Iran. You know, you know stranger it, things have happened it, lately. It floats. It floats, and they just... Dragged it with the you see, now, boats. now I can see why we'd go to war then if they took one of our territories. <laughs> they took Guam. That's what we're going yeah, to war next for. next they'd be yeah. Virgin Islands. Yeah. You know we're going to get emails from people yeah. saying, they'd probably you know, re they took Guam? <laughs> yeah, they'd probably rename that the 70 Virgin Islands. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Okay, uh, continue our story. Anyway, um, U.S. officials have repeatedly claimed Iran is aiding Iraqi insurgents. In January 2007, U.S. forces raided the Iranian consulate general in Erbil, Iraq, arresting five staff members, including two Iranian diplomats. It held until November. Last September, the U.S. Senate approved a resolution by a vote of 72 to 22, urging President George W. Bush to declare the IRGC a terrorist organization. Following this non-binding sense of the Senate resolution, oh, okay, non-binding, the White House declared sanctions against the Quds Force as a terrorist group in October. The Bush administration has also accused Iran of pursuing a nuclear weapons program, through, though in, most intelligent analysts say the program has been abandoned. Now, didn't they just... It's tough to really figure this all out, because I've heard that from a lot of intelligent anal, intelligence mm -hmm. analysts, including people I know that are in the intelligence community. Um, but I've also heard other people say that, you know, like, flat out, here's the bill of sale that, you know, the Soviet Union got from 
Iran to build this reactor, you know. Right. And that there's all this delayed payment on stuff, and you know, it's the, hard to. Frankly, the problem that I have is I don't know any information to believe that's reported in our mass media, because we've just had a story we've reviewed before that talked about a special program that our Pentagon ran to put quote unbiased military experts in the mass media to be these unbiased uh you know evaluator consultants yeah, except they weren't anywhere close but to they, unbiased and they were told a message to sell yeah now i'm sure that's not completely new but the fact is i i, I suddenly realized the other day that when we watched uh, like cable news or other kind of things like that the commercials never stop the, the, no. the selling, the sell job, whether it's something for Ford or GM or the regular news, mm-hmm. it just changes who's the person selling us as the public. Mm-hmm. What are you buying is the only difference. That's exactly it's just something different somebody's yeah. buying. So the the problem I have in understanding all this is I can't verify one or the other because our our the the, the purity of our mass media and freedom of the press has been muddied with so much manipulated information right now that we've lost the public trust. Yeah. I mean, at least how many, the Dr. Future trust. It's, in the almost, it's, almost, it's funny you mention that. You know, you listened to Dan Rather when he went on Larry King after he was fired. How many times did he mention truth in reporting? Yeah. Zero. Yeah. It was, all about, it was all about what he deemed worthy as news and what he deemed not worthy as news. That was his implied take on his journalistic career. Right. Right. Well, that's you're automatically starting from the wrong, from the wrong uh, preconceived notion. If and, that's what you're doing. And the victims are the public mm-hmm. because you have people from different directions that are manipulating supposed unbiased independent news information and spinning it to manipulate us one way, just like Madison Avenue does. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad because really people can only trust Future Quake as a source of information that's unbiased. Yep. And uh, because they can see our uh, bank accounts, they can tell we're not having any economic benefit it's from the very, show. It's very, very close to zero. I don't. I haven't been bought off. Bionic yeah. area. I haven't been bought off this week. What about you, Tom? I don't believe so. Yeah, I haven't had too many people line my pockets to uh, no, get a message. No, pretty much out. never. Yeah, and the way we do our show, I would doubt we'd have strong sponsorship. No, in like fact, that in fact, we regularly get we regularly get bills from listeners charging us for right. the experience, the doctor bills. I would think it would be more likely that uh, some company would pretend to be their competitor and sponsor us just to taint the image of their competitor. <laughs> Not to That's give them good. any ideas, That's good. That's good. you know, by association. Yeah. Do you have some more to share with us about this story? I do, I do. Uh, the U.S. and Iran have had a long and troubled history, even without the proposed airstrike. U.S. and British intelligence were behind attempts to unseat Prime Minister uh, Mohammed Mossadegh. I think I said that right. Mossadegh, yeah. Mossadegh? Yes, Mossadegh. Oh, you're right, Mossadegh, who nationalized Britain's Anglo-Iranian Petroleum Company. That's a fascinating thing. You go we and could you have read, a whole show on that. Yeah, we, you go back and you read, and uh, the Brits sort of bought at gunpoint, if you will, the, uh, the Iranian oil fields. And uh, it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's history. You can go back and read it right. in any, any history book. Well, you know, we're going to have to call it a day because really? we've got to make a quick announcement. Oh, time goes so quick. Uh, we need to make a couple quick announcements about uh, our website and yeah. how we can get emails. So let's run those real quick, and then we'll have to do a really quick wrap-up. So Tell us about it, Merv. Yeah. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Okay, so now you know how to find our website, and 
We want to hear uh, some emails from you, and uh, we're going to find out uh, how we're going to get those emails. So listen yeah. up. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we're in our last minute, so we need to bring things around home here. And we may have another another minute here. I, I don't know. I, gosh, it was another big week. Chris Pinto stuff was, you know, we've talked How to him in person. How can you compare it? Yeah, right. we've talked to him in person, but it's always, uh, it's always amazing to get him in sort of a more condensed format, you know, right. half-hour segment, kind of a, you know, he's talking about this, he's talking about this, he's talking about right. this. Uh, I just can't recommend higher that... Uh, you uh, go get some of his products go at Adullam Films or look for a uh, mm-hmm. link to him at futurequake.com. Uh, there where you can find access to all these documentaries. Mm-hmm. They are mesmerizing. I oh, mean, they are great. just fascinating material. Great. It will change your worldview. Riddles and Stone was a big one for me. Yeah. Three hours long, and you're kind of like, where's he going, where's he going? And then he pulls it all together in the last half hour. And, and like, it comes, wow. from a, comes from a very strong uh, Christian perspective yes. of things. So uh, we're going to have to call it our time here. All right. But uh, it's been good to be with you, Tom. I enjoyed it, as always. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for putting up with us for another week. We hope you enjoyed uh, this week's show. We're going to have another fantastic guest next week. So until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake. Let the old world make believe Blind and deaf and